It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 209, with Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. This week, AI poisoning, YouTube privacy consequences, vigilante apps, and the Beatles. Good afternoon, Gary. How's life Hello, in Denver? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Nice here. Uh, we, calm before we, the winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we've been experiencing an above average amount of rain. Um, so it's been windy and rainy, and um, I ended up having to test my uh, my generator just in case. Uh, we have a generator that you know runs the. Uh, if we have a prolonged outage, I want something that will keep the refrigerator and freezer running. Because <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, that's that's the um, uh, the highest cost of failure when we run out of power. Um, mm. So you know, for any prolonged period of time. Fortunately, it's been a long time. Our power grid out here has been relatively stable for some time, but uh, didn't didn't always used to be that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've never set anything like that up. Yeah, yeah. No, we've got the whole transfer panel next to our circuit breakers and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's wow. interesting for sure. Hmm. Things behave differently when they're on a when they're on a generator as well. So, um, I've got some random things I was I you know came up with this week. The one that I want to start with is um, there's a, I've seen a couple of articles on it. Basically, there's a new technique that uh, promises to make poison photographs for AI consumption. So by that, I mean, there's apparently something that they can do to the photographs that causes the AI scanners that you know consume all this stuff to build their database of what pictures look like. Uh, causes them to get confused mm. in 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 some very interesting and and significant ways, I guess, all with the promise of not being not actually affecting the image to the human eye. There's something uh -huh. else going on. And uh, the first thing that came to my mind, of course, was this is probably some form of steganography uh, where they're embedding some data of some sort mm -hmm. into the uh, into the image in such a way that once again, you know, you don't see it, I don't see it, but the uh, the AI learning modules uh, do see it and react poorly to it. I, I, it kind of, if it looks like an image to the human eye, I have a hard time understanding how that wouldn't necessarily um, uh, still look like an image to the AI, uh, cons you know, consumption tools. Sure. But they, they claim that it does. And, you know, I'm not necessarily really interested in this particular instance of AI detection or AI poisoning, as they call it. Uh -huh. um, I'm more interested in the broader topic. And that is, you know, is deep fake detection, is AI image detection, is AI um, uh, writing detection, and to whatever degree is AI poisoning by putting in, you know, data that causes the AI to go kind of nuts. Um, is that sustainable? Mm -hmm. My my thinking is that it's absolutely not. That at some point, um, the the whatever technique they're using today will be overcome by somebody's large language model. Um, whatever technique they're using today for images will be overcome by some image parser. Uh, you know, it just it's it's a uh, I don't want to necessarily call it a, a game of whack-a-mole. I think it's more an arms race where, you know, as one side 
the AI creators gets more powerful and the uh, image originators, the authors and the artists um, get more concerned and bring more tools to bear to make their products or their, their creations less consumable. Um, I, I just see both sides continuing in this escalating war. Now, the interesting part is that the AI consumers, the folks that make large language models, the folks that make things like Dolly 3 and so forth, um, for the most part, they're the white hats in this scenario in the sense that at some point, somebody's going to agree on some rules. You know, we you you can consume these images, but you can't consume these images. Or here's a way to indicate that you're allowed to parse this, and here's a way you're allowed you know to indicate that you can't. And in fact, I believe there's already a a, a standard for a file you could put on a website called AI.txt that basically says, you know, this is what you're allowed to look at, and this is what you're not allowed to look at when you're building your large language model database. But as with all cases like that, that keeps the good guys in line. The bad guys are going to do whatever the heck they want. Yeah. And they're the ones, I think, that are really going to be pushing the envelope on uh, sidestepping, thwarting any and all attempts at AI detection. Mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking about that a fair amount because, you know, I've, as you know, I've been using a fair amount of AI the past couple of weeks, uh, mostly image generation because it's kind of fun. And I've been impressed with the results, but I don't really understand how you know, the folks who created the original images that feed these models can do anything about it. Um, I don't know. What What do you think? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I, um, I, I it, the thing, it reminds me a little bit, there's a TV show. Um, I may have mentioned it in years past called The Capture. It's a British TV show where it's actually video, like using AI to uh, change uh, video surveillance uh, feeds live to uh you know is basically implicate somebody in a crime and there's right. all the evidence on video right. of everything they need to you know and the person's like i didn't do it i wasn't there i was you know and it was like well we have all this evidence right and um and somebody was putting themselves in the middle there you know being able to fake this stuff um it, it gets better and then you know attempts to detect the fakes are going to get better and it's like an arms race um, it is kind of funny, you know, that you said like the white hat stuff, right? Cause I've done, tried to make fun things for my stuff and there's all this like watermarking and everything. And it's like, but I'm not trying to, <laughs> and I'm not making anything and trying to pass it off as something else. I'm making like, right. it's just for fun. It's just a funny image to accomplish, you know, to a company like you do, like to accompany a, a, a topic. Yep, absolutely. You know? In fact, I usually give attribution to the yeah. to the AI yeah. model that I happen to to do it from. I'm not seeing watermarks, but my assumption is, and I haven't looked, that the yeah. uh, the metadata for the image probably contains Pro probably does. Yeah, and now I think also too, it's like if you're trying to poison an image, like my first thought, like if I tried to feed an image into uh, like an AI thing, maybe just do something simple. Maybe like I want to identify. Oh, it's a picture outside. Where is this? You know, this is like a city block. What city is it? Oh, AI might be able to tell me. I feed it in and it like can't tell what's going on because some something's embedded in the image. My first thought would be to take it through and filter the image. Like apply like the 1% blur. 
that you can't even really detect. <laughs> right, change right. the color, right? Make it take a little bit of the color out and highlights and stuff. Make it just, it's just a slightly different image. And right. I'm thinking when it reprocesses all the pixels for that, even just export it as a JPEG, you know, and let it compress, you know? And my thinking is eventually I'll hit on something that will remove whatever is there in the pixels. And yep. suddenly it looks like a normal image again. Now, how hard is it for the AI to do that by itself? Like the first step is you do it. And then it's like, as soon as you figure out, oh, all you need to do is export this as a 60% JPEG and it works every time. So now just tell the uh, the AI, hey, every time I send you an image for an analysis, just immediately make it a 60% JPEG and then analyze it. Right. You know, so. Right. Yeah. The uh, It's funny because I've thought about various ways of thwarting the various things that um, that I've heard suggested. The metadata one, for example, is such an easy one to remove, yeah. right? There are tools that will remove it or worst case, um, a decent screenshot. <laughs> but yeah, that's <laughs> we'll the... basically start all over with no metadata or different metadata. The screenshot um, one is the one that bothers me the most because it's It'll work even in the situation I was talking about, right? Because you're scaling it on your screen and all that. And so right. you take a screenshot and it works. The infuriating part is you, you still want to, you know, yell at anybody doing it. No, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you should run it through a filter or do something much more <laughs> complex. What you're doing is wrong. It's the same thing. I wanted to yell at kids when I was, uh, when I was young that would want to, uh, copy music from one cassette to another by putting a microphone in front of a speaker. Oh, like you're doing it wrong. And they're like, we don't we don't care i get right. the song on my my cassette now i can listen to it in my car yeah. and it's like <laughs> yeah but it, you're doing it wrong <laughs> it's the same thing take a screenshot and now it goes through AI just fine no you're doing it wrong you, you have to you need an algorithm you need to pass <laughs> it through and, and do a gaussian blur at you know one degree or whatever you know so yeah so yeah anyway like i said the article that i that spurred this um uh, this thought on on my you know this this line of thinking for me, um, it's called a clever shield against photo fakery um, mm -hmm. in the MIT Tech Review, and it is essentially that first thing I talked about where they've come up with this algorithm to throw poisoning data into the image that presumably will confuse the AIs. I like I said, I just see it as um, not even necessarily the first step, but an early step in a in an arms race. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that's that's yeah. what I wanted to cover there. Cool. Uh, so yeah, I saw a story that's really interesting because if, if you if you're like a fan of YouTube or you go on YouTube a lot, you may have seen a story of, of the last couple of months where YouTube is cracking down on ad blockers. So this has been like you know YouTube ad blockers are a whole thing. Like people have web ad, web ad blockers, and some are very specific about just blocking the ads on YouTube. Um, people want to watch stuff on YouTube and they don't want to have to see the ads. And they weren't, you know, an ad blocker on a website is just looking for like a block on the page that is showing an ad. And they know it's showing an ad because it's coming from some ad server, right? Right. And yeah. then just have it be a white space instead. But on YouTube, it's a whole, there's a whole streaming thing where there's a video player and it's inserting ads, you know, before and during the video. And so having an ad blocker that basically tricks the video player into not showing those ads or skipping them immediately or whatever. Um, it's a whole thing, but people who watch a lot of YouTube um, will either, you know, try to find one of these and work hard to get it going or pay for them, uh, which always upsets me because it's like, well, there's, you could pay YouTube just to take the ads off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the creators actually get, you know, more than half of the, the ad money. 
So it's like you could do that and actually be paying the people that are like creating the videos you're watching, or you could play, pay an ad blocker. And that's just going to the person that made the ad blocker, not the person who's actually like the video you're watching. But anyway, YouTube has been kind of upping their game a bit because it's not hard technically to detect if an ad blocker is running, especially if you own the site, right? If you own all the tech behind the site, I mean, right. you could just simply say, show the ad. Oh, wait a minute. It's one second later and the 15 second ad is over. No, you didn't see it. You must be doing something, right? right. Or like if it's just not loading or if they just basically say, here's the player code. Oh, let me check the player code. Oh, wait a minute. The player's been altered. You know, right. I know it's been altered because it's my player. And then the website can go and say, okay, you're running an ad blocker. And it's it's a it's an arms race where it's really easy for YouTube to win as long as they devote a little bit of effort to it. Because all they got to do is look for the next ad blocker to come up, figure out what it's doing, put some, you know, a new detection thing in there, and then just tell the person, oh, you, you've got something going on in your browser and you can't watch this. Well, there's been an interesting aspect to this that has come out. And that is that some people in the EU are now suing over the fact that YouTube's detection of ad blockers is a violation of privacy. The idea being that somebody has got an ad blocker on their machine and YouTube is detecting that they've got that ad blocker. Hey, you can't you know, violate the user's privacy to tell what they've got going on in their browser. Right. So it, which is I looked into it. I'm like, yeah, you know, technically that actually is a violation of privacy. I didn't think of it like that. And they, there's actually a part of the EU privacy law that it, they say it is specifically violating. Interesting. Um, and so that YouTube can't do this. They can't violate the user's privacy by detecting whether or not they have an ad browser. Now, this is very frustrating because <laughs> YouTube's, <laughs> you, you know, it's YouTube site, right? So you think they should be able to go and say, hey, here's some videos. You just got to watch the ads or pay us for the premium and you don't have to watch the ads. And then some other people come along and say, well, I'm not going to abide by that agreement. I'm just going to watch the videos. I'm not going to watch your ads. And then YouTube says, well, then you're not allowed to view the site. You know, That's the conditions of the site. In order to see if they're violating that condition, they have to violate the user's privacy. That's super frustrating. <laughs> Because there's so many conflicting things, right. you know, the, the user's right to privacy, but also YouTube's right to, you know, say this is what our site is. And, you know, these are our terms for our site. Plus the fact that in the middle of the whole thing are the creators who I happen to know, they get slightly more than 50% of that ad revenue, right? So it really is, I mean, I, I think people have the impression that YouTube might get like 98% of it. And like a trickle goes to a creator, which is true for a lot of other services. Yes. But YouTube, it's not true. YouTube does give a big portion to the creators, uh, which is why you've got successful YouTube channels, right? right. They're not all cat videos and stolen <laughs> stuff. They're people that actually like get hit videos and then keep making those videos, whether they're, you know, making, you know, fun videos or lifestyle videos or science videos or whatever or tech it is. videos. Yes. Tech videos. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they're doing that. The reason they, when you see a channel that is doing good, it's because they're doing that because they're making a living off of doing it, or at least part of their living. And, um, but you know, the ad blockers kind of take that away. So that is a, it's a really perplexing kind of paradox of issues of inter privacy meets ad blocking meets, uh, you know, creators uh, making money uh, off of the you know, creator economy. 
uh, meets like, you know, big, big uh, tech, you know, in this case, Google. Um, and there is a solution to it. A weird, uh, well, there's a solution to it that I thought of immediately. And it's a solution that scares me. The solution, of course, is that um, YouTube stops showing videos on the web and just shows them in their app. Because that's why there isn't a problem like this for, say, say, something like TikTok or Instagram, because it's all in an app. They control the environment completely. Interesting. So you don't have ad blockers for those. Technically, you there's still things you could do to block ads, but web ad blocking is a whole different thing. Right. So I'm afraid uh, that, well, if they go and they say, yep, you can't detect ad blockers and Google has to say, well, we give up with that. So in order to protect our revenue, uh, we're just going to remove YouTube.com. And you have to actually use the YouTube app Interesting. Uh, on so whatever platforms. And that scares me because we're web guys. We came up with, we grew up with the, you know, the web. <laughs> I mean, the web is like, it's like the ultimate freedom, right? It's like anybody can create a website. You can, I can create a website in five minutes and have it up there. I can't create an app in five minutes and I've got gatekeepers for the, different stores the app has to go into but mm -hmm. a website is like real like tech democracy right create a website um so having a part of the web die like a maybe the most popular site on the web at least one of the top two or three um because of a privacy rule so uh, you know the, the so the implication by the way is that um on platforms where uh, they do have an app yeah. I.e. mobile. Yeah. The ad blockers don't work. Right. Um, it's interesting because a lot of it in my, in my, I don't know, it doesn't make it right, but YouTube in a sense has been doing this to themselves. And I say that because um, I purchased YouTube premium, mm. I don't know, a couple of years ago um, mm. and I've been paying for it ever since. And it is honestly some of the best money I've ever spent. And I say that because, uh, well, two reasons. One, um, I get to share it with a limited number of accounts. Mm -hmm. So um, I immediately uh, you know, shared it with my wife's account and now she doesn't have to look at ads either. But um, the ads, there just were so many of them mm -hmm. um, you know, at the beginning. And then they started inserting them into the middle. Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, yes, I understand that that's how they need to pay for the service. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and you and I specifically, we benefit from that, um, just as we do benefit from the premium subscribers, but, um, the, um, you know, the folks who don't want to, or can't afford to pay for it. Um, yeah, I understand the frustration. I really do. Um, I don't know what the solution is, to be honest. Um, I, I really don't know what the solution is other than something like, uh, YouTube premium. You know, that's the only one that makes sense, quote unquote, legally. I was wondering if, um, obviously, it's been a long time since I've been through onboarding with YouTube. Uh, I suppose I could create another account somewhere and, and see what it looks like. But before you start viewing YouTube, mm -hmm. I assume you have to agree to some terms of service. And it seems like the... Um, the whole GDPR thing would be rendered moot if part of what you were agreeing to 
was allowing YouTube to examine what else is going on in your browser. Hmm. That yeah. way, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, but that doesn't help. It doesn't help if the EU has laws against it. Well, like, so what the question is, what is the law against, right? right. Um, it, it's, it's against perhaps unknowingly giving away your privacy. But if you explicitly give someone permission to do something, um, is that still against their law? And obviously there it yeah. really does boil down to the specific wording of the law. But my assumption is that, um, you know, we give YouTube and Google permission to do things all the time, right? Whenever you um, link, say, your YouTube account with one of the many YouTube uh, creator tools, one of the very first things you do is you log in with Google and it tells you, hey, you're about to give this application these additional permissions. They can do everything to your account, right? And you say yes. So you've just given away a big bucket of privacy to like a third-party app. Well, how is Google any different in that sense if they're looking at what's going on in your browser after you've given them permission to do so? Hmm. Obviously, like I said, it depends on the wording of the uh, of both the terms of service, which I haven't seen forever, and I don't know that I'd want to read from cover to cover anyway, and uh, the wording of the GDPR. Ditto, actually. I don't want to read that either. Yeah. Um, so, But it just seems like there are a few potential outs for YouTube along the way. One of the things I was thinking of as you were talking about this is this reminds me so much of uh, a couple of tools used for Facebook, Social Fixer and Fluff Busting Purity. These are browser extensions that basically allow you to customize the YouTube web feed uh, more along the lines of what you want. And yes, both of them do things like remove the ads from your feed. They also allow you to do things like change the behavior, have it always revert, you know, um, uh, display the uh, reverse chronological instead of the algorithm. There's a bunch, a bunch of different features in each of these tools. And one of the things that they're constantly fighting with is, in fact, uh, the arms race or the whack-a-mole in that YouTube, I'm sorry, Facebook will make a change to the way it displays things on the web page, and it'll break these tools. And then the authors of these tools will be scrambling to figure out a new way to make it work with the current iteration of Facebook's code. And it'll work again for a while. And then Facebook will break it again. How much of that is intentional? I have no idea. But the bottom line is it's still kind of sort of the same thing. These are extensions, third-party extensions that are intended to remove the advertising mostly from, um, from tools like Facebook. So YouTube, it, it'd be interesting if, if YouTube loses in um, in GDPR in Europe, uh -huh. what implications that might have for other software? Yeah, no, definitely, and the web, and yeah. So it's a it's a it's a it's interesting, something to keep an eye on. I I think uh, every time I think of like GDPR, I all also think of like how um, unusable, not unusable. That's an exaggeration, but you go to websites, you know, since that. And you, you get hit with those boxes right. of right. accepting, you know, with accept co all cookies or customize, you know, so if you don't want to accept all cookies, sometimes you have to customize and spend a good deal of time, like turning all the switches off right? and then saying, this is what I want. Um, or just even if it's, you know, making a decision there, it's like, 
oh, did they really? I mean, I'm sure they really didn't have that in mind that the entire internet, every website you go to, would be behind these, you know, selection boxes that yes, you have to read. And, yep. and it, it's made it a it's made it the web a much worse experience, especially uh, if you do uh, research, right? Because yeah. the problem with research is you you're going from site to site to site. It's one thing to go to one site and spend hours there. But if you're saying, I want to research something, I'm going to Google this, like a tech thing, and now I'm going to all these different websites and every single one of them is presenting me with a, you know, what cookies do I want to accept kind of deal. It's interesting there, it's, which actually dives into the fact that there are now browser extensions that will automatically answer those things for you. No, so I you, seen that. you don't actually see them, right? Yeah. Um, just because they've become that annoying. Um, they are, in my opinion, totally ineffectual because what do people do? They say, make this go away. They don't make informed decisions um, of what it what the, the EU originally intended these things to do. Um, and the fact is, every site uses cookies. Uh, so basically forcing every site to tell you that it uses cookies it's really stupid, <laughs> really, yeah. really stupid. Um, but um, yeah, and I don't know. Uh, it's it's. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention is I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Google AdSense, one of the advertising networks, I believe that they are going to require that you have this kind of consent mechanism on your site in order to display or monetize your site using Google AdSense. Mm. So um, it's it's um, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Indeed. Ugh. All right. Um, yeah. One of the other things I ran across uh, this week is an article in the Washington Post called Use Find My Phone Apps But Don't Trust Them. And I found it fairly interesting. We've talked about, you know, find my devices and uh, you know apple's little device the the thing we were talking about a couple of episodes ago about maybe putting on some of the equipment we've got for my nonprofit um and being able to see where it went there are a couple of stories in this article where people have done that they've had their phone stolen they've used find my device and they've basically gone vigilante. And there's at least one person who mm. set fire to the house that was indicated as containing his iPhone. Mm. The only problem is it wasn't the right house. Oh. The, the actual location was wrong. Um, and I think that the, the, the comment that the article makes, and I think it's a very good one, is we have been trained by these location tools to more or less believe them. They're actually pretty good. Um, you know, when I can see <laughs> when I can see where in the grocery store my wife is based on my Google Maps, that's actually pretty cool, pretty accurate, right? But uh, the important thing that I think a lot of people don't remember is that that level of accuracy is not in any way, shape, or form guaranteed. And depending on the environment, depending on the situation, the uh, the location determining technologies, of which actually there are three, uh, can sometimes have a, a margin of error uh, on the order of 
miles. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to see uh, a friend of ours, um, you know, it, you know, normally her icon is right at home, right where you expect it. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while, she's instantly five miles west. And we don't know why. We don't know what it is. Mm. Um, but there, there are, like I said, there's basically three things that combine to come up with the um, location. GPS, of course, is what everybody thinks of. And GPS, its accuracy depends on how many satellites your phone is able to actually um, hear from. And uh, that can get, I think, as close as one or three meters. I forget, but that's like the highest re uh, resolution. And that's actually pretty darn good. However, it's impacted by, like I said, the number of satellites. And if you are in a, a place with a lot of um, either electrical interference, if you're living in a Faraday cage, in other words, you're, you're living in an aluminum building or, or aluminum frame building, um, or uh, there's a lot of, uh, I know that it's, it can be difficult when you're out in the wild, if you're under a lot of trees, those can act as deterrents. So the accuracy can go way, way down. And of course, most of these tools don't really have um, a display of exactly what the margin of error is currently for the number of GPS satellites they happen to connect to. There are apps on your phone that will tell you that, but they're certainly not the default apps. They're certainly not the mapping apps or the find my apps. The other two of the other things that are used then are um, Wi-Fi hotspots. We've talked about this yep. long ago. Uh, essentially, there's a, I guess you'd call it a database of some sort of this Wi-Fi with this SSID or maybe this MAC address or maybe who knows what um, lives here. So that as you're moving about, if your phone encounters, doesn't even have to connect to it, but if your phone encounters that Wi-Fi hotspot, then it kind of sort of knows your location. You're close to that Wi-Fi hotspot. So that's another technique they use. And then, of course, there's always the cell towers, right? The stuff you see in uh, detective or, or police shows all the time. It's like, okay, fine, you've got a cell phone. Um, we've been able to ping it from this tower, which means it's here. And now we've been able to ping it from a second tower, which means it's got to be here. And, you know, if we're lucky and we actually can triangulate on it, then, you know, maybe we can get really, really close. But like I said, in each of those cases, there is this margin of error that is, maybe it's not necessarily common, but it is absolutely possible. And it is possible, I think, more often than people realize. And that's what's leading to this kind of stuff. And it's not just people out for vengeance trying to find their phone and take it out on whoever stole it. Um, there have absolutely been reports of, uh, you know, police activity that have relied on this kind of information and gotten it wrong. Oh, sure. Uh, the information, you know, they followed the information that they were given, but the information simply was wrong and they didn't understand that there was this margin of margin of error. So, you know, the, the big takeaway here, of course, is, yeah, use it. I mean, if you lose your phone, use Find My Phone. Uh, you know, you'll get some idea of, of at least where um, it is. If you're using AirTags to track your luggage, great. Um, you know, if you find out that your luggage made its way to South Africa, you're not, it's not, you know, the air tag isn't what's going to give you your luggage back. Um, so, you know, don't get your hopes up that much, but, um, you know, it is useful information to provide to the people who could actually do something properly. And hopefully they understand the, um, the limits of what to expect out of this stuff. Uh, the bottom line is just don't trust them. Yep. I, I think I talked about this before on the show. I definitely talked about it in a video I did. Right. But this idea I came up with of if you if you find 
a lost phone, right? Because <laughs> I was thinking you'd be burning the house down kind of thing. Um, like the situation could arise where you're walking down the street and you see somebody's phone and right. you want to be the good guy. So yeah, pick up the phone and you say, great, I'm going to keep the phone safe. And hopefully, because it's, you know, maybe it's locked, right? So there's nothing you could do. Hopefully they've got tracking and they could find the phone. Matter of fact, I'm going to take it home and I'm going to plug it in to keep it charged, right? right? So they can continue to track it. And you think you're the good guy. But what you may not consider is the other side is they might not realize they dropped the phone. Right. They may get home and say, somebody stole the phone. Right. I'm going to track it. Ah, I found out where it is. This is where the thief may be. So you're under the impression you're the good guy, keeping the phone charged, hoping they show up. And they're under the impression that you're somebody that stole their phone. Right. So my solution, and I've never had to use this, but I thought if I ever had to, I would put a piece of paper on the door that they would you know, go up to saying, I found your phone. I found it on, you know, wherever in such and such park or on whatever street I'm keeping it here in charge. If this is your phone, just, you know, I, I I don't know. You, you could direct whatever you want from there. The, the, the big part is is if they show up thinking they're going to confront you or they show up with police right? and they, and they see that note, it disarms the situation. One would hope. Well, yeah, um, well, because you would you would look at it and say, well, maybe they're doing that to fake me out. It's like, well, why would they do that? Right? Why, if they're that aware of the whole situation, you wouldn't put a sign on your door. And at least it it makes them think they might be completely in the world of somebody stole my phone. Right. No other possibility is out there. And at least that, when they see this note, they say, well, wait a minute. Hopefully maybe there they'll, is possibility. they'll find that before they burn down the right. house next well, door. <laughs> I would hope that they would go to the door at least, look at the door and say, is this the right they, address or whatever? They don't know it's your door, right? I mean, you know, if find my is is off by a house or two. Oh, yeah, if they, it's off by a house or two, then yeah. You I, could walk I up guess. to the house next door. I guess um, don't burn somebody's house down because I well, don't know. obviously, yes. But, don't commit but, a crime to try to correct a crime. Vigilanteism doesn't pay. Yes. Yeah, because even if the person is an actual thief who stole your phone, right. you still shouldn't burn their house down. Right. Because Please. that's still illegal. Um, yeah, my you thinking know. is that if I were to find a phone somewhere, yeah. um, I would just bring it to the police. Well, actually, that's what I talk about in the video. This is uh, from a few months ago. Mm -hmm. the, the first thing I say, because I, I researched it, I wanted to figure out what the right thing to do was. Okay. And the, the problem with bringing you to the police is it depends where you live, right? I mean, I'm sure there are places yeah. where you can yep. bring it to the police and, you know, everybody knows everybody and it's great. And at least the city I live, and I think in a lot of other cities, it's not going to do anything. It's going to, you, you, first of all, where do you even take it? And if the other person discovers it, like discovers they've lost their phone, they're probably not going to think to, where's the local precinct? You know, they're not going to do that. Well, find um, my phone will show that it's near the police station at least. Maybe. I mean, it's probably much less of a chance to find my phone to work inside a police station where it may be thrown into a closet or a box or something. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, a police station, I think, is the most likely place for you to walk in. The phone could be literally right under the desk. And you ask the person behind the desk, I lost my phone. Has anybody turned it a phone? And then just say, I don't know. I got work to do. Uh, you know, we're, we're solving murders and stuff. It's, right. Uh, we don't have time to find your lost phone. We're busy um, dealing with this house that's on fire. Yes. Or 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 just the, simply it's like, I'm the person on desk uh, on duty this hour, right? Mm -hmm. 
if it didn't get turned into me, I have no idea where it would be. So right. uh, police, I, I ruled about it's it's basically my conclusion in the video was if if possible, turn it into the nearest authority figure, like the host of at a restaurant or a waiter at a restaurant or mm -hmm. a school the the main office the you know wherever it is think like the person who first of all assume that the person who lost the phone remembers where they lost it right. or at least has a short list oh i right. went to this store this store this restaurant and then home so they have a short list and then think if they went back to that location where's the first place they would go Right. They would ask some, somebody on the staff there or on the office of the school or the front desk of an office building or wherever it is. Think about that. It's usually like the nearest kind of like connected to the location person that there is and give yeah, turn responsibility over to them. Hey, I found this phone in your restaurant. I found this phone in your office building. Um, the person may come back. And that's actually not only, I think, a good thing to do, but it's also the most likely to be almost an instant return. Like you could do that and two minutes later, the person could be like, hey, did anybody right. turn in the phone? Whereas right. like a police precinct or something in a city, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, if they even show up, how much longer would that be? Anyway, that's getting and once again, the topic. It, well, but it's actually a good, a good solution in general, just because um, again, uh, this is all about find my devices, not necessarily being as accurate as we think. But if you suddenly realize that find my phone is showing it like, um, you know, at a at a business that's next door to the restaurant you just had lunch at. Yeah. OK, that'll trigger your memory. And then you'll head back to the restaurant and ask them or, or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of advantages to it. So and, and actually, I, I the, the original. um thing that uh, made me think of that is I was boarding a flight and somebody actually um, found a phone on a chair, like, right. you know, yep. right in front of where we were boarding. And they did, they did a weird thing, which was not the worst thing to do is they, they kind of called out anybody who's left their phone on this chair, anybody. And I'm thinking, well, half the flight is boarded at this point. So there's probably yep. on the plane. Um, but then he stood there and he held the phone up in the air, like in a way, in an awkward way that you would be like, why is that guy have his hand up? Oh, he's holding a phone. If you just lost your phone, or even if you didn't lose your phone, the first thing you do is like right. grab your pocket. Yeah. Is my phone there? You know? And I thought that was a good idea. But a better idea was he was like five feet away from the the flight attendant checking right. people in. Right. Just go over there and hand it to her because not only would that be the first place I would go to and say, oh, is anybody turning on a phone? But if the entire flight boards, she's the person that could go walk down there and say, hey, somebody left a phone behind on the, you know, in, in the uh, waiting area. Right. Anyway, so. It's funny because right. that, that scenario actually is less and less likely these days, mostly because um with uh with electronic boarding passes you just can't get on the plane without your phone oh i i don't know i see i still see <laughs> I so many we're, still, we're all it, there with our with our phones with the you know the code yes, showing on them yeah. although it is kind of weird if you think about it i mean boarding an airplane that should be like at the forefront to all the technology not only because they've got so much technology there anyway mm -hmm. but it'd be easy to standardize and upgrade things I'm still using a visual code on the screen, right? You have to actually put the phone oh, down yes. on Understand the scanner. Yep. I just, I went to a concert, uh, a comedy show last week and 
I was surprised when I brought my Apple wallet up that usually will show a code. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't show a code. It just said, here's your ticket. Uh, hold close to the scanner. I was like, oh, NFC. Yep. You know, I was like, I've been, I haven't seen an NFC. I know this was possible, but this venue, it was NFC. And sure enough, you just kind of waved your phone close to the little thing the guy was holding and it had beeped. And that thing I liked about it is it's for everybody. Everybody had their phones out and they were doing this. Mm -hmm. And it was fast. It was yeah. much faster than the getting the code visually over the little thing. Right. Um, this was like beep, beep, beep. Everybody's just going through. It was really nice. So, but airlines, no, no, it'll probably be 10 years before we see that for boarding yeah. planes. Honestly, I'm happy with where they are right now. It's so much better than paper. Yeah, oh, it's better than a lot of the other stuff. Yep. So, yeah. So, um, yes. several episodes ago uh, yes. in TEH 197, we discussed uh, the controversy, if you will, mm -hmm. about at, at that time was an upcoming release of the quote unquote last song by the Beatles. Yes. They were going to be using AI technology of some sort to essentially recover John Lennon's voice from a recording that he had made, the last, essentially one of the last recordings that he had made mm -hmm. uh, with the intent of releasing it as a Beatles song. At the time, we were saying, no, 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 it's not, they're not deep faking John Lennon's voice. They are um, essentially extracting his voice from the recording and getting rid of all the other things, um, you know, the guitar and the, the whatever else yeah. he's singing. Over. Piano, I think mostly, yeah. Um, and uh, so that song released publicly, I think it was last week, and I yeah. listened to it. Mm-hmm. We've, before I go into it, what do you think of it? Did you? I'm sure you've heard it. What do you think of it? Of course, yeah. Well, you know me. I'm a huge Beatles fan. Uh, it was, it, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically the part of a. There were three songs, uh, on that tape that were made into Beatles songs, but they were, um, twenty. It was twenty years ago they made the first two, and Free as a Bird. You may remember that one. That was from 1994, before George Harrison passed away. Mm -hmm. um, the three Beatles got together and made those, but they couldn't make one out of Now and Then mm -hmm. because of they couldn't separate the voice enough with the technology that they used. So, but then twenty years later, and it was after Peter Jackson made Get Back, and they used all the technology to to work on the audio that they had for those films. Paul basically sent the cassette to him or to that team at least right. and said, can you get the, can you separate the vocals out of this with that same software you were using? And they did so in seconds and sent it back. So then Paul and Ringo said, okay, well, let's finish that song then. That, that was, you know, that was an outstanding thing we had. Uh, we'll finish that. And fortunately, the cool thing is, is because they worked on it some back in 1994 or whenever it was, mm -hmm. um, with George, George actually recorded some guitar for it before oh, cool. they gave up on the song. So they not only had John's recording of his vocal, but they had George's recording of some guitar from that, you know, when they were trying to do the song in the first place. So it really is a like a all four Beatles collaboration. That's uh, kind of cool. It, it, it's a good, I mean, I, you know, I was surprised because I'm a huge Beatles fan. I listen to Beatles all the time. Um, and uh, and this isn't even the last time we'll be talking about the Beatles in this podcast. Yes. Uh, but uh, the uh, I, I was surprised that after I gave it one listen and thought, okay, yeah, you know, I didn't expect it to be a hit or anything, I, that I was able to actually like, you know, hear myself 
especially John's vocal going on in my head um, afterwards. It's interesting. Um, so I did you watch the um, the video? Yeah, I, I watched the um, video and the documentary. There's a short documentary ah, okay. on Apple yeah. Music. I have not watched the documentary, but I did yeah. watch the music like video. It's a 15 minute documentary. Yeah. It was interesting to see uh, a couple of things. One is they had, um, you know, present day uh, Paul and yeah. Ringo with, uh, you know, literally on screen at the same time as older uh, yeah. snippets of video from uh, from John and George. But um, very slowly throughout the video, especially at the end, um, Paul and um, Ringo get younger and younger and younger. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. At the I very end, that. right, they got some of the oldest photos of them, um, you know, holding instruments at any rate. Um, so you can just see them progressively getting younger. Yeah. My take on the on the music itself is, yep, that's the Beatles. It definitely sounds like the Beatles. Hmm. Um, it didn't move me the way that it seems to have moved some people. If you read the YouTube comments on the video, there's some folks oh. that really, really took it, you know, deep, deep to heart. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, I, I would call it, uh, pleasant and nostalgic, but as you said, it's not going to be like a Billboard Top 100 or anything like that. Yeah, it was uh, just a nice—I don't know—just a nice thing to do. And um, yeah, I'm always welcome any any Beatles stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it the the Beatles industry. I'm a huge fan, but I still recognize that there's a big industry, mm -hmm. and that things are pretty well thought out in terms of like every year or so. There's so you know the last uh what was it, two years ago was get back you know the 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 movie eight hour movie or whatever there's there's constantly things uh being put out there for Beatles fans because there are a ton of Beatles fans and um so yeah you want to you want to keep things going I mean it's the same thing with any kind of artistic universe you know whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or you know uh novels you know books by various people and all that you just there's a constant the harry potter universe constant little things coming out all the time um one thing that i thought was kind of cute at the end of the video mm -hmm. um years ago you remember the controversy because the uh, uh the record label that they used was apple yeah. yes and i think i forget who sued who i think they sued apple computer yeah. mm -hmm. lost or something like that yeah. but now um at the end of the video it is copyright apple core as in corp yeah which well, I that's, thought was, was, was always that was um, it? apple corp yeah there are apple corp and, and then it was apple computer and then there was a the, the original lawsuit i believe was resolved um with apple computer giving apple core money and agreeing to never get involved in the music industry which they broke pretty quickly <laughs> As you know, well, but you know, and the funny thing was, is I remember the when the original agreement came out and it seemed reasonable. And then a few years later, it became like Max started to have the ability to like edit audio. Mm -hmm. So it was like uh, cr crossing over a bit. And then the MP3 revolution happened, right? Right, right. And then Apple started with iTunes. And then at that point, it was like, oh, this was inevitable, right? It was like how naive to think that Apple computer could not have anything to do with music. So then there had to be you know, at some point, the, the law, you know, well, Apple computer clearly broke the agreement completely. Um, and of course they had to, I mean, it was like billions and billions of dollars at stake. Right. So uh, another agreement had to be reached and that agreement that was negotiated by Steve Jobs, who of course is uh, famously a huge Beatles fan. And Interesting. he, he, um, uh, he, he had, 
the uh, not only as part of the agreement, uh, you know, most likely Apple Inc. at that point uh, paid Apple Core a ton of money, um, probably, but also they negotiated the agreement where the Beatles music came to Apple Music first, to iTunes first, actually. Right. Right. Um, so that you know, they hadn't. The Beatles were not the last holdouts, but they were, you know, starting to look like one of the last holdouts. Right. Right. At that time. And then it was kind of a coup. And now even we even see that today with like, you know, Apple Music prominently featuring this single now and then and the documentary and the video and all that right. as part of Apple Music. And Apple Music has had tons of Beatles content because um, they, uh, they've been re-releasing albums um, right. as different anniversaries have hit with like remasters and using all sorts of the latest technology to uh, not only produce uh, clean, very clean tracks uh, for all the songs, but also take the uh, outtakes, the other versions. Like there's ah. a great one of, uh, you know, of Revolver um, is fantastic. Revolver has basically, you know, it's the original album and then like at least two versions of almost every song. And this versions are very different. Like oh, interesting. You, you hear that because a lot of times, when you get a rock album and it's like, oh, here's an alternate take of this. It's like the alternate take is like, oh, the the violins are quieter or, you know, is <laughs> one there's one little verse that's different or something. This is like dramatically like early takes, like when they would go in and record something uh, and it was like, here's just one, whoever, whatever Beatle wrote it, just basically playing it for the rest. Mm -hmm. And and it's like, well, the chorus is different and they're, they're playing guitars instead of, you know, all these instruments and all this. And they have that in there. So there's a bunch of these albums and they're all on Apple Music. I, I don't I assume they're on the other services as well. By um, now, I would assume so, too. Yeah. Fascinating to listen to the alternate takes of these well-known songs and hearing the, you know, the, the evil. It kind of demystifies them for me. You know, my whole life you hear a song like Yellow Submarine or something, and it's like that's there's just the song Yellow Submarine. That's it. There's like the official song. And now all of a sudden hearing like, oh, it sounded different on take three. Right. <laughs> you know, they had different words and they were doing different things. And how bizarre to think at some point the song was in this state. And then they kept working on it to get to the thing that everybody knows and recognizes. Yep. Fascinating stuff. Mm hmm. Um, okay. Ain't it cool? So we're going to continue the music theme as it turns out. Yeah, uh, very much so. Uh, so what I'm going to point folks at is a video on YouTube. It's actually a recording of Bach, Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Uh, for those who don't know me well, um, that is that piece of music is, I would consider my favorite piece of music of all time. This one, however, is a very interesting recording. It is played on what's called a, uh, let's see, a, a bandoneon or a bandoneon. I'm not even sure the right pronunciation. Hmm. That happens to be a type of concertina, which most people would incorrectly call an accordion. And it is extremely well done. I was, I actually have listened to it twice so far just today after I ran, ac I ran across it just completely by accident this morning. Um, uh, and uh, so I just thought, you know, if there are any classical music buffs out there, normally we're used to hearing Toccata and Fugue in D minor on a pipe organ. And if you hear like the first few bars, you will recognize it instantly. In fact, I think that that's probably almost, uh, I would say the first 
15 seconds are what everybody knows. And then the rest of the music, nobody really listens that long, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But if you if you actually listen to the whole thing, it's actually a very intricate, very interesting piece. And like I said, and this particular recording, this particular video made me realize how much of music and indeed what you and I do every day is nothing more than pushing buttons in the right order at the right time. Yeah. Um, and that is specifically true for this instrument. Uh, one of the differences between it and an accordion, I think, is that it's one of those that has round buttons at the end instead of having a keyboard along one side of it. Uh, and you can see this guy is, I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes it work. He's doing all the button pushing in the right order. Anyway, in addition to that, I'll throw out a bonus. I actually have a YouTube playlist, a link in the play, link in the show notes of, um, I think right now it's got about 28 recordings of Toccata and Fugue in D minor, um, ranging from, uh, you know, the traditional, the, the best recordings on pipe organ to some fairly, I'll just call them unique recordings that, um, that struck me. So anyway, Toccata and Fugue in D minor. I like it. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't going to even include this as my ain't it cool, but then you brought up the other Beatles thing. So right. uh, it turns out right now I'm finishing a book about the Beatles. Uh, I've read a lot of books about the Beatles over my life, from even when I was a kid. I was fascinated with the Beatles history because they were just before my time. Um, so, but the very recent past. And then my whole life I've loved Beatles music. So I've read lots of books. And I know their history really well. Mm -hmm. uh, but this book is just about the year 1966. It's called Beatles 66 uh, by uh, Steve Turner. And it is a very detailed look at that particular year, which was the, basically they they started the year. They were still basically the Fab Four, um, you know, making singles and, you know, doing all that. And at the end of the year, they're basically about to start on Sgt. Pepper. And then the year mostly uh, had the making the album Revolver um, and really kind of expanding uh, in many different artistic directions. Uh, so it's like the year that spans like that early Beatles uh, Fat Four stuff to the later Be Beatles high creativity, you know, uh, albums and musical uh, uh, stuff. And it's fascinating to hear that I've never heard this level of detail before. It's also a, the guy who wrote, it's obviously a fan. I mean, but he doesn't pull any punches in terms of like talking about, uh, you know, the good and the bad uh, yeah. that, that the Beatles were involved with. When a lot of histories I've read were always just like, this is written for the fans. You know, let's not talk about the drug use, that kind of thing. <laughs> it, it very much goes uh, into that. Um, and talk and just a, an incredible level of detail I've never heard before, uh, but it's all historical research. I mean, he's he's a historian. He definitely he's constantly quoting articles, interviews, um, things like that. And then he even makes a point, which was interesting, saying that a lot of Beatles history today is retold from interviews after the Beatles, uh, you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties through today, where Beatles are recalling what it was like. Mm -hmm. He tried to take almost all of his material from things that were recorded and said that year. Right. And a lot of times they conflict, you know, this, we have information. This is what happened on this day in 1966. But then Paul, 25 years later, said it was something different. Hmm. It's like, okay, we're going to go with the original information and not <laughs> Paul's 25 year old recollection, right. you know, of what happened. 
Um, so it's just fascinating stuff and it's new uh, depth because 66 was like they did Revolver. They had the whole like uh, more popular than Jesus thing uh, go on. Uh, they discovered they started playing different instruments and putting different instruments in their music. Uh, they were, you know, Revolver had things like Eleanor Rigby and all that mm -hmm. uh, in there. They started doing fashion. They started doing, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, getting involved in the arts and and, the, and then the whole London scene uh, art scene was exploding that year and they were kind of you know at the center of that um so it's a really fascinating book a little different than everything else i've read about the beatles oh yep um yeah and i honestly i can't imagine an accurate beatles history that doesn't talk about drug use yeah, well, <laughs> not is... necessarily because not necessarily yeah. for the uh, um the drug use itself but it had a dramatic impact on their music well yeah and in, in this i mean you know, there's there's some of the stuff, some of the songs are obviously like in Revolver, like Tomorrow Never Knows. And she said, she said, the lyrics are obviously about, you know, drugs and LSD mostly. Um, the, after reading this, you come to the realization that almost all of the songs were about <laughs> LSD. Like, like literally, like there's, there's tax man's about taxes. The rest of them are about LSD. <laughs> So. All right. This week, yeah. I want to point people at why can't I talk to a real person? It is definitely a frustrating scenario that I hear from people all the time. They have an issue with, I don't know, pick your favorite free service, Gmail, Outlook.com, Yahoo, whatever, and there's nobody to talk to. And I delve into um, why that is and some of the things that you can and cannot do about it. So why can't I talk to a real person? Askleo.com slash 31060. Cool. Uh, I'm going to point to a video that's not out yet, but it kind of pertains a little bit, uh, or it's more current. Um, and that's uh, uh, this. there's a thing going on now where Apple announced earlier in the week, we could have talked about this as a story, but um, there was a PR person at Apple actually said, no, we're not coming out with a 27-inch iMac. And until now, it's been rumored uh, that there's no more 27-inch iMac. A lot of people like me have said, look, there's no 27-inch iMac coming out. Don't hold your breath. Uh, right. But now an official Apple person has said, we are not working on a 27-inch iMac. Um, so I created a video. Okay, give it up. Here's what you can get instead. <laughs> like, stop waiting for it. You still have great options like a Mac Studio and uh, the Apple Studio display, that kind of thing. Like this is your 27 inch iMac. It's been in front of you the whole time, but now you can kind of give up waiting for an actual 27 inch iMac. So it's kind of a different video for me and it's actually going to be coming out on Friday this week. So I'll include a link in the show notes here, but um, but yeah, if you're listening to this before Friday, the link won't work. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. Yep. Thanks, as always, for listening, everybody. We're going to let Adam take us out. Bye, everyone. Bye. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh209. If you have a comment or question for us, be sure to leave it on the show notes page. The TEH podcast is hosted by Leo Notenboom of askleo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com and edited by Connie Delaney. I'm your synthetic announcer, Adam, from elevenlabs.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here real soon.